Well, good morning. My name is Jeff, and I am one of the shepherds here. And I, I did want to mention, uh, Joel and I were talking about this a little bit earlier this morning, that some of you who have been coming on a regular basis are used to a scaffolding up on the stage, and that scaffolding is gone. We have not yet finished the skylight. It is still being fabricated uh, to, so that it's safe. Um, but in the process, you may hear what sounds like somebody's moving lumber or a piano or something behind us. That's actually just the wind blowing the tarps on top of the rapture hatch. Again, just so that you can be, uh, you know, comfortable, we don't think it's the rapture. We think it is just the wind. So if I leave and a couple of others, then know that that's changed. We are jumping into Genesis 1, and uh, last week, Darren, you know, he did four words, and I just thought he probably didn't do that right, and we should go back and visit those four words, but uh, those weren't the verses he gave me, so we're going to jump in, as, as you just read, is Genesis chapter 1, but we're picking up at verse 2, and we're going all the way to 25, 20, 25, 26, right in that range, uh, 25. The, the concept that uh, to start off with is I want you to understand that this is the, the beginning of the whole story of mankind. It is, it's almost this idea of a cosmology of how we think about the world, how we think about our life, how we think about our existence. And I don't know about you, but sometimes you have those moments where you're thinking, you're thinking, what is this thing that I'm alive in this life, in this world, and what's really going on? What's really happening here? And this, right at the beginning, is in the Bible, it stops and says, this is what's happening. This explains it all right as it lays out. But I want to tell a story uh, that I've shared before, and it's, the, it's that moment that I met Eugenie for the first time. I was working at Hume Lake, and I had just been hired up there, and I was working at a pot sink, scrubbing some pots and pans, and uh, the, the, on the other side of the sink was a little hallway or a walkway, and I'm scrubbing, and these two girls walk in, and as they walk in, one had been around for a while, and she wanted to introduce her friend, and so she introduced her friend, Eugenie, and I was scrubbing this pot, and I remember looking up, and I remember looking at her face, and it was just like I was smitten. When they stop and say, love at first sight, I don't know that it was love at first sight, but it was infatuation. It was desire. It was, that's good. That in just a, a fraction of a second, I was blown away, and I thought, I, I like this moment right now. This is a good moment. And she's a beautiful woman, and I could see that. I'm an intelligent man. And so um, the, the rest is history. We got married. But just this last week, I was reading about a study in, from the University of Pennsylvania where they literally were studying this idea of first impressions and how quickly we can take something in. And what they did was they took pictures of people's faces that they thought were attractive and those that were just not attractive or normal and then others that were attractive and they just simply flashed them on a screen and had the individuals respond of whether they thought that face was attractive or unattractive, attractive, unattractive. And they were able to measure it and with the recognition that, that a person could determine a person's attractiveness, they got it down to 0 0.013 is how fast you as an average human being can identify whether somebody is attractive or not. 
in basically just a little under one hundredth of a second, you make a first impression and you stop and say, I think they're attractive. I think they're not attractive that fast. Now, I know that to be true because that happened at the pot sink that day. I was a real life, you know, experiment in that sense. And I know that that first impression not only hit me in that 0.013 seconds, but coming in June, we celebrate our 40th anniversary. So I was right in 0.013. That was a good thing. Now, here's the point. Because you're like, what, is, what, are we, where, what happened to Genesis? Wasn't he going to talk about Genesis? Well, here's the deal. Right off the bat, this is our first impression of God. Do you get this? This is the beginning of the beginning. And the very first time when God stops and says, I'm going to give you a book that talks all about me. And now I want to tell you about me. And I'm going to tell it in this way. And he tells the story. This is our first impression of God. What we're about to do is we're going to look at what he does on those first six days of creation. And it's our first peek at him. It's the first time we get to learn a bit about him. So we're going to do just that in this passage. And we're going to jump in and and get to know him a bit. And this idea of getting to know him, um, if you've got your Bibles, and you're going to need them this morning. If you've got them, um, we do have some journals that are out in the back. If you didn't grab one and you want one, just get up right now and I'll embarrass you as you walk towards the back. But in Romans 1, in Romans chapter 1, Paul is talking. And in verse 19, he says, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. What can be known about God is plain to them because it's revealed in the things that have been made. That that Paul himself stops and says, Everything that can be known about God, not everything, but what can be known about God that is plain to them is plain in creation. And we're talking about the creation story right here. That this idea of knowing God through what he has made is a a principle that lays out in scripture pretty clearly. And, And this idea that what can be known about God, we can study some fascinating things about science and creation and everything that goes on in that level. And the the idea is, is that you read about how vast the universe is and how far away the stars are and about the the, the whole thing about the, the, the molecular level of our bodies and how it functions or about our DNA or about the tilt of the planet or about we get so many cool things that point towards God. But you have to know that when Paul is writing this in Romans, they don't have microscopes. They don't have telescopes. They don't really know physics. They don't know any of this stuff. Paul is saying it's the plain stuff. It's the basic stuff about creation that makes God known. Even through the things you know well, you do not have to be an astrophysicist to know everything about God. The idea is, is that God reveals himself and now he's going to reveal himself in this passage. Last thing, just before we start in, is the concept that in literature, there's a normal pattern. And especially in scripture, there's a pattern where repetition kind of reinforces or emphasizes a a point or an idea or truth. 
Let me say that again. Repetition has a way of emphasizing or underscoring, underlining a particular principle or truth. Let me say that again. Repetition, you get it, right? That if something's repeated, that it does that. So you have poetry like uh, Edgar Allan Poe's uh, Quoth the Raven, Nevermore. You know that line from the poem because it's repeated over and over so much so that it sits with you. And if you're a parent, you might know one like, I'm a pout-pout fish with a pout-pout face. So I'm spreading the dreary-rearies all over the place. How many of you know that one? If you don't, you need to buy that. That is one of the classic all-time literature works. But it focuses on the pout-pout fish with a pout-pout face, so I'm spreading the dreary rearies all over the place. As a parent, you have that memorized, and you wish you'd never have to read it again. But in Scripture, it shows up when Jesus is talking, and he says, truly, truly, he repeats. He's making an emphasis. Or in heaven, in the very end of time, when the Lamb of God is there, and the angels are there, and they have been saying for all eternity, holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. Repetition matters. In this story, Genesis 1, there is repetition. Lots of things get created on different days, but there are six phrases that are repeated over and over again, and you will almost know them already because they're there. But the concept is in that very, and we'll look at um, verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and jumping towards the, the very end, and it was evening and there was morning the first day. There are six of these phrases that show up. That God said, that's repeated again and again. And what God said was, let there be, and that's repeated again and again. And it was so, and that's repeated again and again. God saw, that's repeated again and again, that it was good. Repeated again and again, evening and morning the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day. Those are the six. And so we're going to look at those six and find out what we can know about God from this concept of what is repeated through this passage. So right off the bat, the very first one is God said. And the the principle that comes out of this is just because God says with a word, he creates the entire universe with just simply speaking. This is pointing towards this eternal power. And if you've got your journal or you're writing down notes, this one is just simply God said, and that word is power, that there is power in the word of God. Let me say that again. Repeat, there is power in the word of God. And this power isn't just simply words. If you watch something like Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings, you're going to hear about magic spells or incantations. When somebody says a little phrase, you know, it's the magic phrase like abracadabra. Or I I had to write one down from Harry Potter, but the uh, Wingardium Leviosa. Wingardium Leviosa, and it can make things levitate. And so with Wingardium Leviosa, you can make things fly. That's magic. This isn't that the words are magic. In this this case of when God says, it's who's saying it. The power is in who is saying it. It's not the words he says. It's the fact that he's the one saying it. That's where the word, the power comes from. Even if you think about Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or any other magic trick that you see, they're not able to do it unless there's some power behind the words. The words are not the power. The power is the person. 
And in this particular one, when it says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Now we're going to jump over to another verse. And, and I bet most of you know which verse it is. But John 1, 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of John. And in John 1, 1, listen to what it says. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. It's talking about Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, through Jesus. And without him, without Jesus, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And God said is the power of his word. It's not the word itself in in the, the letters that come together to be a word. It's the word of the person of Jesus Christ. All things were created by him. Everything that exists exists because of him. And even the things that still exist that are held together consist because of Jesus. Your body held together right now, not just molecules flying apart, but the reason why you are who you are is because Jesus is here right now still holding you together. That's the power of God's word. When he speaks, he can create something out of nothing. I don't fully fathom that. I don't get that. But what I know is it's a little bit more powerful than I am. Because I say things and I could say, let there be ice cream. And I would say that a lot. But it, it just doesn't happen. Now, sometimes I can say that and Eugenie might hear it and she will bring me ice cream. Do you understand the difference between the word and the person behind it that has the power? Eugenie has all the power. That's the primary point there. <laughs> no, it's that the God has all the power, this eternal power. God said, and then this very next line, what he said is, let there be. This is point number two, let there be. And if you're going to write down a word, write down the word creative. That God himself is just boundlessly creative, eternally creative, that his creativity knows no limits. And this concept here that let there be is what he does say as he comes up with this, this idea, this imagination, this creativity. And he just simply stops. And with that idea, he, he, he makes it. Whatever he can imagine, he just makes it. And he imagines some pretty weird things. Some pretty cool things. Anything that he could make or anything he could imagine, he made. Now, just so you know that I'm thinking about this is I'm studying this passage and I'm thinking, if that were me, like if I could just speak and something would come into being and I could just say, let it be and it would be and it would be created. The first thing I thought was, what kind of world would I make? This is the world he made. What would my world be like? And then I thought, well, then I'd probably have to place it in a universe. So what kind of universe? But it didn't take. My brain went so fast from I just created a world without any detail because I couldn't think of anything. And then I went to a universe that was even bigger. And I thought, I've got to slow down and get down to something small. So I thought, well, unicorns. We never really got unicorns. I, I would make a unicorn. And then I thought, ah, oh, but then there's money. I could make gold. More gold. And I went to a personal thing right away with my own imagination, something that served me. God didn't do that. Instead, he created a universe that that points towards him, but it did some pretty spectacular things. And so I've 
just simply taken some time to write down some of my thoughts. And I'm going to apologize to you, but I'm going to read them. And this is a little bit of just to take you down the road of these six days in God's imagination on this. So on the first day, he created the heavens and the earth. To be clear, he didn't copy from another heaven or another earth. There were no books, no blueprints, no online plans to Google. He imagined them. He thought them up. Just the idea of them was brilliant, whether or not you could actually make them, but he made them. And the earth was covered in water. Oh, yeah, he made water. What is water? What does it do? There aren't even water parks yet. No jet skis, no boats, nothing to wash off and nobody to be thirsty. But he made it, already thinking that he would freeze some of it for storage and occasional snowstorms and that he would evaporate more of it to save for a rainy day. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. He also created light, you know, photons. Let's be clear. He created physics. And his physics... In his physics, he made photons, which are a form of electromagnetic energy that are particles, sort of, which come in waves, sort of, and some, but not all, of the wavelengths are visible to the human eye. But again, we're getting ahead of ourselves for no one had even seen a human eye yet because he hasn't yet made a human or the eye. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. On the second day, he created atmosphere. I can't really explain atmosphere, but he did it. He had water pooling up below because it's really heavy. And he had water flowing up, floating up above because, well, just ignore that idea that it's really heavy. But it's up there. And in between, he created air, an invisible gas, gas with no visible structure whatsoever that would separate the two. More physics. That's the second day. On the third day, he created Yosemite and the Pacific Ocean. Yep, on the same day, Mount Everest, Sahara Desert, Rocky Mountains in all of Africa, Asia, Europe, and South America. He gathered up the waters into the seas and dried out the land, and then he got busy. God, in his imagination, began to create plants, speaking them into being. He thought up Venus flytraps, giant sequoias, oranges, and avocados. That's right, by the third day, God had already thought of guacamole. Ferns, mosses, green lawns, dahlias, peonies, roses, dandelions, and oats so that we could one day have oatmeal cookies. He didn't just create the ideas of these species. He made their roots, their flowers, their leaves. He created an endless variety of ways they could get nutrients and grow, and even more ways that they would pollinate and develop fruits, which had seeds, which had yet more ways on how the seeds would travel, plant themselves, and germinate into a new plant, and all without a farmer. On the fourth day, He made the sun and the moon and the stars, like all the stars, all the stars, the Andromeda galaxy, the Horsehead Nebula, Orion in his belt, and Little in his dipper. He placed even more stars further than the eye can see, further than the Hubble telescope can see, 100 billion stars in the average galaxy and over 100 billion galaxies. Don't even try to do the math, but that's the fourth day. On the fifth day, he started making seahorses, jellyfish, sharks, whales, minnows, salmon, Lobsters and water unicorns, otherwise known as narwhals. On the land, he made the birds. From the hummingbird to the condor, he imagined a flamingo, an owl, a pelican, an ostrich, and a woodpecker. Oh, and the tail of a peacock. Never mind the actual peacock. Just the tail feathers are a work of art. But his imagination didn't stop there. He also imagined what they would eat, how they would mate, that they would build nests and lay their eggs in them because eggs are normal. On a sixth day, he's making kangaroos and zebras, monarch butterflies, honeybees, gorillas, and meerkats, flying squirrels, elephants, field mice, and giraffes. He made over 350,000 species of beetles, including the ladybug and the giraffe weevil, and you need to look up that one later on. 
He, he thought of fireflies and cicadas that, like teenagers, don't even get out of bed for 17 years. <laughs> and then on the sixth day, this God, with this incredible imagination and creativity, decides to make one more thing. God decides to make you. The very first species that is actually even capable of noticing anything made on the first six days. Then he made you. Number two, let there be. And he imagines it. Is that just not cool? Well, you don't have to answer the question. I think it is. So first one, God said power. Second one, let there be. And it's this imagination. It's his creativity. Number three, (laughs) this one. And it was so. It's just so simple. God said, let there be. And it was so. And it happened. It's one thing to dream about something. It's another thing to make it happen. This idea that you would have an idea and be creative, that something would actually come out of it is spectacular. When I was in Seattle working with the homeless, one of the ideas that I had using my creativity and imagination was what if we started a food truck where we took the local top chefs in Seattle and they would each come up with a a great menu item and they would provide it for free. But then while we were out there during lunch to sell to Amazon and Starbucks and all the different businesses that are there in Seattle, we would pull up our food truck. They would come and get a meal from one of the top chefs there. They would pay us money and we would take that money and then convert it over to be a mobile food bank that night that the food truck that would sell food in the day would later on at night give it out to the poor and those in need and we would use those very same people who bought the meals to be our volunteers to go out and staff the truck and go out and do it this is a great idea it doesn't cost us anything it's manned for free and it feeds the poor it's basically we were thinking about calling the food truck robin hood because it would take the money from the rich and give it to the poor I thought it was a great idea. Guess what? It never happened. This idea that God said, let there be, and it was so, is the fact that what he says, what he thinks, what he wants happens, and it is so, and he makes it happen. The third one is just simply faithfulness, the faithfulness of God, this divine faithfulness that never fails, that his promises are everlasting, that God is who he says he is, and God does what he says he's going to do. So I just wrote out a couple of verses and I'm going to read them really fast because I want you to just almost close your eyes and think about this God. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. His faithfulness endures to all generations. He has established the earth and it stands fast. God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make good? If we are faithless... He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That this God says, let it be, and it is so. His promises, his prophecies, his commitments to you, what he does is everlasting. And this is the power of this. So the first one, God said, that's the power. Number two, let there be, that's creative, that's the creative part. Number three, it was so is faithfulness. Number four, and God saw. This one, you can almost write this one yourself. And God saw. 
He didn't start this whole thing spinning and just speak it into being and then go off and play golf somewhere. He stayed involved and engaged and actively, personally watching, not just on the days of creation. If you're like me, your brain is going to go to Hagar. That when Abraham has got his wife, Sarah, God makes this promise, his faithful promise, that his wife is going to have children, but she's not having kids. And so Sarah says, why don't you take my servant Hagar as a, as a woman you can sleep with and maybe the seed from your, for your family will go through Hagar. And then Sarah, once she gets, Hagar gets pregnant, Sarah gets real upset at that and chases Hagar away and she flees and she goes off into the wilderness and God meets her there. And as God begins to talk to Hagar, not to Abraham, not to Sarah, that's not the conversation that's happening. It's to a slave woman lost out in the wilderness that God stops and begins to have a conversation. And she stops and she recognizes the principle and she says, you are a God who sees me. You are a God who sees Genesis 16. That concept there is this is a God who stays engaged and is personally involved in our life. He didn't just start things spinning. He, he just, he continues to be involved. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Psalms 139. And Psalms 139, the verses 13 through 16 talk about this. The whole chapter is about this. But in verse 13 of Psalms 139, it says, For you, you God, for you forms my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. That before you even existed, God saw you. As you were being birthed, as you were being formed in the womb, God saw you. Now that you're a walking, living human being, do you think he doesn't see you anymore? He sees you. This part where it says, and God saw, is a beautiful truth about who he is. When we stop and say, what can be known about God? We can know that God is a God who sees. He's aware of you. He's aware of the good things. He's aware of the bad things. He's aware of the challenges. He's aware of the things that make you happy and the things that make you sad. He sees them. He knows he's there. And that's the fourth one. The fifth one. God saw that it was good. And again, these are principles that you can almost know right off the bat that it was good. This idea that that God can actually set a value or a virtue on something. He can do something well. He can do it very well. And in this concept that God... God is doing this. He's creating this whole creation and he repeats this line over and over. And God saw that it was good. And then God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. You get the idea that that never once did he stop and he goes, you know what? That one's okay. That one's sort of satisfactory. It's good enough for now. And it's kind of late in the day. I'll be done with that one. Everything that he did was good. That God only created what was good. He never once said, oops. And I'm thankful for that. There's Jeff. Oops. 
Yeah, I made a mistake with that one. No, he didn't. He said it was good. And this speaks to his craftsmanship. We were just talking about Joel. Joel being a master craftsman with woodworking. Take a look at that background, the way that swoop goes. I don't even know how to do that in my mind. How did he do that? And then how does he cut it so that it doesn't have all these jagged lines? And how does it work out? You know how he does it? It's because he practices and he becomes a master at it. He becomes really good at it. God doesn't need to practice. He does it with perfection from the very beginning. And he is good at it. He is the ultimate master craftsman. He's holy. He's righteous. He's true. All of these words mean goodness. From him come the concepts of truth and justice and beauty and mercy and grace and forgiveness and love. Is that not good? Those are good things. That's what comes out of a good God. We get to know about him. And in this story, it's telling us that he is powerful, that he is creative, that he is faithful, that he is personal and that he's good. Not good. He's very good. Last one, number six. And then evening and morning, it was the first day. Evening and morning, it was the second day. Evening and morning, it was the third day. And this concept just lays out this beautiful idea of just order and planning. That God has purpose, that he has a plan, that he had already forethought it, that I'm going to do these things on this day, I'm going to do these things on this day, I'm going to do these things on that day, and then at the end of the day, he stops, and at the end of the sixth day, he rests. That God has a plan, and it's ordered and set into each area. That even with the trees, he would create each after its kind, and every species after its kind. That there are distinct lines, that those species don't cross over. That, that he, has a, um, he has a thing for order. He has a thing for planning. That he was planning ahead of time everything that he would do. That shows up in scripture again and again. That before the foundations of the earth, God had already planned this. And he talks about that Jesus was there before the foundations of the earth. The word, the power, everything that was there was there before. He thought of you before the foundations of the earth. We just read that in Psalms 139. That before I was even born, you saw me. This is God and he's already involved and planning. This concept is is a beautiful concept if you think about it even just in normal relationships. And when Eugenie and I get a chance to talk with people about their relationship, a marriage relationship, we'll encourage them to bring romance back into their marriage. And the idea is forethought and planning. It's that simple that you would just think about the other person when they were not around. Think about what what pleases them, what serves them. And you would begin to plan something that would please them and serve them even when they weren't around. And that if you pulled it off, that would be called romance. So guys, write down that little note, just uh, think about that, that you could do something maybe next week. What would you do? Think about what she likes. Think, think about the things that might serve her and start working on it right now. And if you do it, that turns out to be nothing more than romance. This is what God is doing with this one. And he stops about order and he says, even before it happens, I've already planned it. I'm already working on the details. And as he thinks through these details and lays them out, it, it becomes a beautiful thing. 
I've shared this story before, but it's such a cool story. Some friends of ours, young couple that we, uh, we did some marriage counseling with and, and was involved in, in their wedding. They wanted to thank us for everything that had been done in the process. But at the time, they didn't, they didn't pay us anything. They just said, thank you. And they said, we're going to do something for you guys later. And so we waited for years. We waited. We pretty much thought they forgot. We didn't do it so that we would get something out of it. But one day they came to our house. They knocked on the door. And as they knocked on the door, they came in and said, we would like to send you two to London. We're going to send you to London for 10 days. We're going to pay for the flights and we're going to pay for your housing and we're going to take care of everything. And we're even going to give you a thousand dollars spending cash to go to London. And we're like, what? No way. This is not equitable. This is way too much. You can't do that. And they said, we thought you would say that. So what we've determined is if you don't give us dates to buy the tickets for, then we will order the tickets this afternoon and on any random date and we're going to mail them to you. We are going to spend the money regardless, and we knew you wouldn't take it. So we're going to spend the money. You give us dates so that it's not wasted. So we did. (laughs) We're not stupid. We picked the dates, and we said, here's the dates that we could be away for 10 days. And and they sent us to London, and they worked on every detail. They had it down to where you're going to arrive here. You're going to have a little bit of jet lag. We're going to let you sleep in, but here's how you sleep and to make sure you can get over the jet lag. And then you're going to go here to this restaurant. We've already made reservations. And then you're going to go see Les Mis in London, and we've already bought the tickets. And then you're going to rent a car the next day, and you're going to drive to the Cotswolds, and we've got a little cottage that you're going to be able to stay in on the Cotswolds. And then you're going to... Every last detail they laid out and had it planned to perfection. Ah, I still tell that story because it's just a good story. That's awesome. Guess what? That's the first six days of creation, but it doesn't stop there. What happens next is what I want you to notice is the forethought and planning that God does is I want you to understand in the beginning when the word was with God and the word was God and that's Jesus and he's there, the creator, and he's there at the beginning. The first time that we get to know God and meet him, Jesus is there. Jesus is a a part of this day of creation. He is the one doing the creating. And at the very beginning, at a point in time, when we get into a close relationship with God, number one, the first time Jesus is there at the beginning of this. At the beginning, Jesus is there. The next time there's a really new beginning is the point in time when Jesus is talking with Nicodemus and he's talking about you can be born again, a new beginning in your Christian life. And this is the point of time with the crucifixion and the resurrection. And guess who's there? Jesus. Do you want to know when the next new beginning is? The new heavens and the new earth. And guess who's going to be there? Jesus. The planning from the very beginning and talk about repetition that Jesus shows up here in creation. Jesus shows up when we become a new creation by giving our life to Christ and his shed blood makes us new creatures in him. It's a beginning. And the next time this happens, the three biggest points in Jesus's timeline are all pointed at bringing us into a closer relationship with him. Is that not awesome? He creates it so that he creates all the universe so he can have a relationship with us. That he sends his son to die for us so that he can have a relationship with us. That he brings us to the new heavens and the new earth so that he can have an eternal relationship with us. 
the fact that Jesus is involved in creation and the beginning of our life should have our attention on every detail. In the beginning, born again, the new heaven and the new earth, planning. That's the sixth one. Power, creative, faithfulness, personal good, planning. Every time Jesus shows up, it's to bring us into a closer relationship with God. And if you haven't figured it out, this sort of makes a little bit uh, of a sentence that who is this God that we're getting to know? This powerful, creative God is faithful and desires a personal relationship with you, and it's a good plan. Do you get it? Let me repeat it because those are the six words used in a sentence. This powerful, creative God is faithful and desires a personal relationship with you, and that's a good plan. That's a beautiful thing. You know, on that first day when Eugenie walked up to the pot sink, I could have decided that I wanted to know about her. I wanted to know more details about her. That would pale in the comparison to actually getting to know her. The beauty of our life for 40 years is that we have been getting to know each other closer every day. This is what God wants with you. This creation is spectacular. This morning there was a sunrise. If you got a chance to see it, it was God calling out to you going, hey, hey, think of me because I'm thinking of you. Let me pray for us. Lord, I love your creation. I love everything you've done with it. I I love the beauty. I love the mystery. I love the magic of it. I love the wonder of it. I love it that it's so vast. I love it that it's so small. I love it that it's so big. I love that you thought to make Eugenie. And I love that you thought to make me. And Lord, even more so, I love that you have stayed engaged. And in your power and faithfulness, you continue to reach out to me to draw me unto you. Lord, may these passages, as we get into this book of Genesis, draw us closer and closer to you. That we may know you. Not about you, God. But that we may grow close to you and know you in an intimate relationship. We ask these things in your name. Amen.